and welcome to a new week of Talking Talmud with me, Anne Gordon, and your Dana Osband. Something a little different. We're going to focus on some how the Gemara learns what it does when it does with the Mishnah, some historical context. You'll get there as we go. Your Dana, first I know you had some things you wanted to talk about, about authorship to begin with. Yes, I just want to mention, we're doing Daf Tet today. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. As we started new week. Bracho Daftet. Yes, this is on Bracho Daftet. Talking Talmud with Bracho Daftet. Okay, excuse us, our audience. Anyhow, um, so what I want to talk about is a little bit of methodology of how the Gemara tries to unpack who is the author of certain Mishnayos. And what I find interesting about this is, is that there's an assumption in the Gemara that not everybody uh, needs to agree with each other. In other words, different Tanaim can have different uh, approaches or understanding of a Halakha. And therefore, they may have authored a different Mishnah to explain what their understanding of the halakha is. So if you remember on Daf Bet, when we began all of this, uh, this Daf Yomi craziness together, um, the, Mishnah <laughs> that we, the Mishnah that we began with, right, right, is discussing when are we allowed to say Shema at night. And in there, there's a discussion of until what time can you say Shema? And is it until Chatzot, the middle of the night, which is the opinion of the Chachamim? And I think, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Or can you say it all night until Alot HaShachar? And there's that interesting discussion between Rav Gamliel and the Chachamim. Um, it lists in that Mishnah a variety of other mitzvot that also you're allowed to do until Alot HaShachar, until dawn. But the Gemara here on Daftet is uh, quoting Daftet Amad Aleph, the Ilo Pesachim Lo Ketani. The Gemara notices that one of the mitzvot that is not listed is the mitzvah of Korban Pesach, right? That according to the Gemara, the assumption is, is that Korban Pesach should be listed as one of the mitzvot that you actually can perform all night and that you can basically eat it all night until dawn. And how do they know this? Uraminhi. They're going to bring another Tanaitic test of text of Brisa. Okay. And what does that Brisa say? So this price is listing a variety of mitzvot that are allowed to be done until that time of Amud HaShachar, until dawn. And what are they? The reading of Kriyat Shema at night, as our Mishnah Daf Bet explained, saying Halal on the nights of Pesach, right? When they gave the Korban Pesach, you would also say Halal with it. And finally, eating the Korban Pesach. These are all mitzvot that can be done all night. Okay, so we have this obvious contradiction. Why is this not listed? I'm a Rav Yosef. So now Rav Yosef, who's an Amora, comes and he says, look, this isn't a problem. How Rabbi Elizabeth ben Azariah, how Rabbi Akiva. Okay, so what Rav Yosef is going to say is, are the Mishnah on Daf Bet of Brachos is authored by Rabbi Elizabeth ben Azariah. And this b'risa that we brought to show that no, Korban Pesach can actually be eaten all night, this was authored by Rabbi Akiva. And now how are they going to prove this? They're going to bring another b'risa to show this. Ditanya, and here's the next b'risa. So it quotes a pasuk in Shmos that says they can eat the meat, okay, of the Korban Pesach, balayla hazeh, on that night. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah Omer, so Rabbi Elazar comments on this pasuk, ne'emarkan balayla so what he says is on that night, okay, we cannot determine, okay, when the night actually ends. So therefore, what does he do? He compares it to another Pasuk, it says in another Pasuk later on in Shemot, 
This is a pasuk that's talking about how Hashem is going to do makas bechoros. Hashem is going to kill all of the Egyptian um, firstborns. And it has, they're paying attention to Rabbi Elizabeth ben Azariah, that it has the same expression. Balayla hazeh. So what, what does he conclude? Malahalan archatot, afkan archatot. Just like with makot bechoros, that only happened until the night archatot, right? And it uses the same expression of balayla. Therefore, also what? The mitzvah of eating korban Pesach, which also has the same formulation in its pasuk of Belay Lahazah, that also can only be until Chatzot. So then the Gemara goes on to say, Amar le Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva would say the following, Bahalo kibar namar b'chipazon, ad shad chipazon, imkein matum lomar balayla. So Rabbi Akiva would come back because now he needs to explain what these psukim are doing. And he would say, no, I have a different pasuk for you, okay? I have a pasuk, okay, in Shmos that uses the word v'chipazon, right? That it needs to be eaten, uh, that they're going to have to eat the Korban Pesach quickly, right? Because they were going to have to quickly get out of Mitzrayim. And therefore, what does that mean? It means that you can basically eat it all night. Since you had to leave quickly, you can basically eat it all night. That That's the time that you had to do it. Now, I'm not going to go through the rest of the Gemara here, and I want to get to what Anne has to say. But my point is, is that what's interesting to see is, I think, two things. One is, is that the assumption by the Gemara that not everybody has to agree, that we understand that there are going to be a variety of different Mishnayos that are authored by a variety of different Tanayim. The second piece that I think we need to look at, and we'll discuss this, I think, various times as we go through the DAP together over, God willing, the next seven and a half years, is this idea of the Tanayim examining Psukim very, very carefully and based on what the Pasuk says, reaching a conclusion of halacha. And I am going to throw something out there that I think is something for us to think about, which is I think one of the things people um, struggle with when we look at this type of methodology of sort of hooking halacha on words of the Pesukim is, did Rabbi Elezar ben Azariah already have this understanding, for example, that the Korban Pesach can only be eaten until Chatzot, and therefore he goes back to the Torah itself and says, okay, let me see how I can find Sukim that fit my understanding or my Mesorah that I got. I'm speaking as Rabbi Elezer ben Azariah, that we can only read the Korban Pesach, only, sorry, excuse me, eat the Korban Pesach until Chatzot. Or is it that they really look through those Psukim and Rabbi Elezer ben Azariah said, this is my understanding of the Pasuk and therefore this has to be the Halacha. And I think this is one of the very interesting things that we see throughout the Gemara is how they use Torah Shebechtav, the written Torah, okay, in order to understand or illuminate or to basically pask in a halacha that may seem to be something that is more in the realm of Torah Shebechtav. Yordana, I couldn't have said it better myself. In fact, I know I couldn't have said it better myself. What I do want to say, however, is something that pulls off of what you've just said in terms of Psach. Um, we, what does it mean for there to be different authors of different Mishnayot? Right, we know, we know that Rabbi Yura Hanasi came and codified everything. He organized everything, put it there. Theoretically, he's the author, except for nobody ever calls him the author. And we'll come to this shortly as we talk a little bit more about methodology and so on. Um, is a historical context, but in this particular issue, we have different voices of psakalacha within the Mishnah. And not only is that okay, it is very much to be expected. And this Gemara that I'm about to quote to you, read to you. 
makes that point very strongly, dramatically strongly, in my opinion. There's a pair of Rabbanim. They were sages. They were, they went and got drunk one night at a wedding of Levi. They got drunk at the wedding of the son of Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. So they came before Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. Amar, what happened? They come before Rabbi Yeshub and Levi. They got drunk. They got drunk. They lasted drunk past Chatzot. So the question is, what are they supposed to do about Kriyat Shema? Right? Kriyat Shema Shal Aravit, which is what our mission at the beginning of the parak is all about. And they say, he says to them, you know what? You can rely on Rav Shimon ben Gamliel, meaning as we've been discussing, we'll talk about him further as well as we get into different uh, tonight and what they had to say. But it's very clear, Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi doesn't think that you have until the morning, you know, as as a way to live. He says, You're in a time of need. I'm going to tell you to rely on his psak, even though I don't pass him that way. And I find this to be remarkable in an era when we live today in an era when people, there's so much infighting and, and whose hashkacha do you use and which rabbi is bigger than the other guy's rabbi? You know, this inclusion, exclusion kind of phenomenon that happens, you know, cancel culture as it's called, right? It happens within the world of psak and keeping halacha. So I find this recognition of Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi that even though he knew that his psak was going to mess these guys up, in terms of their ability to say Kriyachma. So he says, you know what? Don't rely on me. Rely on the other guy who will give you a more lenient position and you will be able to say Kriyachma. It's a much more expansive view of what's supposed to take place within Halacha, namely help people keep the mitzvot, help people keep the Halacha. Okay, now, in terms of methodology, believe it or not, on Daf Tet, Ahmed Aleph, we come to our next Mishnah, meaning we have completed the first, uh, completed. Actually, we have gone through the Mishnaya, the Gemara that is on the very first Mishnah of this Masachet. Did I say it wrong? Is it Duff? I'm a bet. I'm an Aleph. I'm looking for the Mishnah again, scrolling through Safari, which I find to be very valuable and a bit challenging. The idea of the first Mishnah, of the second Mishnah, rather, is that we have, the, on the one hand, we have addressed this and we've done everything so to speak, we've gone through these pages that address what did Chazal have to say about this. And you know, as well as we do at this point, that some of what they had to say was not really about the halachas pertaining to Kriyashma Shal Aravit, right? It has to say all, all kinds of things, tefillah and evil and, you know, all kinds of um, exegesis of different verses of what does it mean? What's going on in the Gemara is not exactly strictly a list of halacha. That is largely what is going on in the Mishnah. So let's put it in context. Around the year 68 to 70 CE, right, the common era, that is the time of Korban Habayit, the destruction of the temple. At that time, whatever Torah there was, if any of it was getting written down, I'm sorry, let's be very careful here, Torah Shebikhtav was written down. Any oral Torah that was a given on Sinai and accompanied the Bnei Israel throughout the generations until Chorban Habayit, if it was written down, it was written down as notes, perhaps on tablets. Oh, I'm trying to remember my shear. I'll write it down. It was not written down to be the official record. 
And then we come to this era after Chorban Abayit, where there's a great deal of disarray and, and suffering, and B'nai Israel are a little bit in a shambles, maybe a lot in a shambles, right? Jerusalem has been destroyed, and, and they're all over the place. And there becomes what's called a Horat Sha'ah. There became a time of need where they needed, literally, this is the first, and perhaps, I don't know if it's the first, it is certainly a massively significant Horat Sha'ah to write down the Torah for the sake of preserving the Torah. Specifically, the oral, the oral law here, right? So they write it down. Now, what did they write down? And this is a very, very, very debated question amongst scholars, and that I know. Did they write down the Mishnah, and then everybody kind of works as commentary on the Mishnah, the way we might now? If I wanted to write a commentary on anything, I'm going to have the text in front of me, and I'm going to write comments as I go. Or it seems to be more likely the Mishnayot were the oral law, and it was codified. It was formulated very precisely. And then they're what I call the lowercase t, Tanayim. Yerdana keeps talking about the Tanayim versus the Amorayim in terms of those who are the authors uh, or compile, you know, contributors to the Mishnah. Those are the rabbis who had something to say. Lowercase, those are, I call them capital T, Tanayim. The lowercase t, Tanayim, were memorizers. They were walking books. They had sections of oral law that they memorized. And they would say, and there's times, you see it in the Gemara where somebody says like, call over the Tana, let him recite this section of the law. So it is entirely possible and plausible, and many scholars think it is true, that the Mishnah actually was written down, this is a bizarre thing to think about, the Mishnah was actually written down after the Gemara was written down. But it wasn't codified after the Gemara was codified. It was in place and sacrosanct as very clear text. And indeed, you see that throughout throughout the Gemara, right? They're commenting and discussing the different opinions and even the very precise wording of each Mishnah. So the Gemara. So let's say the Mishnah is codified around the year 200. From about 200 to the year 400, let's say, there's still a great deal of literary activity, scholarly rabbinic activity in Eretz Yisrael. And that those teachings and learnings and everything like that got codified largely in what came to be called the Yerushalmi and was attributed to Rabbi Fia. But again, it's a lot, a lot, a lot of different voices. And that's where, as I said before, it's in Palestinian Aramaic. And if you're me, you find it very difficult. Um, and then, I mean, the language itself is pretty difficult. And then the Bavli was codified in around the year 500. And that means that the text of the Gemara that we have has been extant with virtually no editing, virtually no changes. There's some editing. You see Hagah Tabach, there's a little bit of editing. Virtually no changes since the year 500. The question is, is that really true? Is it really exactly the way we have it since the year 500? And again, the scholars will come and say, no, from the years, of, I don't know, 600 to 800, it's a dark hole of Jewish history. Anything you want to know what happened when it happened, but you don't know when it happened because you didn't know what happened before and you don't know what happened later. It happened then during 600, and 800, 600 to 800. They call them the Stama'im. They call them the Savarayim. It's presumably the streamlining and editorial process of making the Gemara come to the form that we know now. Because after that, around the year 800, we end up in the era of the Gaonim. And the Gaonim, those scholars wrote on the text of the, some of them are very, very abridged notes. Some of it is Shelo Tukshuvot, but it refers to the text as we have it. So we can pretty much trust that the text that we have really was in its form as it is now from the year, let's say, 800, even though we basically relate to it as if it was from the year 500. What else is going on for the Jewish people at this time? Well, exile, for starters, right? The temple has been destroyed for all this time, these 500 years, the, or 450 years. The 
Jews have, some of them are poor and a wreck in the land of Israel. Some of them are trying to establish academies, Sura and Pompadita, right? There's challenge there in, in Babylonia, right? They have moved to Babylonia. Eventually they move to Egypt and, you know, another hundred years, another thousand years rather, and they end up in Europe. Um, but throughout this time period, and this is, I think it's also remarkable, we should take note of it. There is very little mention of the day-to-day challenges that Chazal faced. I don't think it's because they faced none. Sometimes they faced none. Some eras were peaceful and they were farming and they were blacksmithing and we hear about their professions. And sometimes they were, you know, on the run from the Romans. And we hear about it in the way that you know that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai hid in a cave, right? There's, there's much discussion of here and there, right, of the historical reality that's going on. Yardena mentioned Asarahun Rugei Malchut the other day, right? The fact that there were martyrs, and they weren't even historically at the same time. So those stories come out through the Sifur Chazal in different places. We end up saying, okay, their reality and the text that they that we have from them are not exactly the same because the text, the text is very often focused on the actual intellectual activity of the derivation of halacha or the narrative of figuring out what the halacha should be or what the biblical passage should mean, things like that. And you don't really get a sense that they're, you know, in a cave hiding from the Romans. Um, a couple of terms, because we keep using them, and I want to make sure that everybody, some people I know who are listening, you know, no shas already, but some do not. So let's be careful for everybody. Mishnah is what we're talking about from the era of the Ta- Tanaim. Breita is all the material. It refers to all the material that was excluded from the Mishnah um, from that same era, from the era of the Tanaim. And there's one other collection from that same era called the Tosefta. The Tessa, Tosefta is, again, the scholars debate, is it really Tanaitic or not, but fine. Um, there's the Tosefta and there is, and there is the Breita. Breita means from the word bar, meaning chutz, meaning excluded, meaning it's not included in the compilation of the Mishnah or the Tosefta. Gamara, the era of the Amorayim, means all of this like vast compendium of literature that was that was afterwards, and it comes to be in our Gemara, but it wasn't present, let's say, um, in the era before the Mishnah came to be. Okay, and that's an important distinction, so that we look at this page in a very ahistorical manner because we're looking at a text that was compiled over hundreds and hundreds of years. And then if you add in the commentaries, all the more so, you'll see just, you know, two millennia of, of Jewish uh, rabbinic literature found on the page. Um, this will come up again and again because what is going on historically, I, I don't even mean historical context Rome, right? The, the wars and behind the scenes. I'm talking about historically from one generation to the next, the Gemara presents people talking to each other who could never have talked to each other because they did not live in the same era. And so when we learn it, we learn it as, you know, one comment responds to the other and it sounds like they're in conversation. And that's an important read because somebody intended for us to read it like they're in conversation. The people who put the Gemara together in this form. And yet when we want to understand, you know, where are people coming from? If we're going to talk about all of the different Rabbi Shmuel's, right? Rabbi Shmuel you have, it helps to, to place people in their relationship to each other amongst Chazal. Yardena, what am I leaving out? I don't know. I think that was a pretty good uh, summary. 
Um, questions, please let us know. You can yeah. find us on Facebook or WhatsApp or email. I don't know. You'll find us um, because we don't want to leave people hanging with questions that, that we could, that we don't even know that we need to answer. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, we want to, I think one of the things Anne and I keep going back and forth with this podcast is going through the deaf, but I think we also want to use this as an opportunity, especially for people who this is their first time learning Talmud, um, to really give you a context of how the Talmud came about, um, who its authors are, and what are some of the goals of the Talmud and what it's doing. So um, we hope and that even this for the people who, as I said, even for the people who already have been through Shas a few times, I think that sometimes this kind of perspective it's so busy. I find it's been very busy this past nine days of learning the daf every day and a little bit in advance so we can record. So I feel like sometimes it's it's helpful to take a step back and say, wait, who lived when? What did they do? Who said what to whom? Could they really have talked to each other? Is this in Hebrew? Is this in Aramaic? What generation is talking? And so on. All right. Thank you. So with that, we will conclude. And that's our daf for the day. So until tomorrow's daf... <laughs> Daf Yud, go and learn, keep discussing. Please find, if you want to subscribe to our WhatsApp group, uh, I don't think we say subscribe to a WhatsApp group, but if you want to find our WhatsApp group, join join our WhatsApp group. You can search around Facebook. We're basically on all major podcasts uh, and we look forward to continuing learning with you. Have a great day, everyone. Bye.